a Shishkin Productions podcast. You have your radio recording devices on? Get them on. Come on! It is in the net! It happens all over the world. People come together, kicking a soccer ball around, and it's a great uniter. Find me. I don't care anymore. Drain my bank account. I don't give a shit anymore. Okay? What's up, everybody? Uh, Producer Eric, what is this one going to be about? Messy, 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 That's right. The messy, the pessy is going to be the subject of today's episode, today's back pass. Um, Producer Eric is obviously here. We also got a few other folks. Hey, what's up? It's Amy, the casual in the house. You got Quizmaster Jordy. Looking forward to Pessy episode. Um, yeah, so the Pessy episode, we got two segments here. Episode 26, where we go to Pop 11 of Cult Heroes. Mm. Um, I don't know. I guess because Messi's a hero. I don't really know why I put that one in here, but whatever. <laughs> the main thing is the next one is from episode 16. It's the deep dive into Messi's origin story. Yes. Mm. So this is where we go back to his time at a Newell Old Boys or wherever the fuck that shit's called. Mm-hmm. And his dad, what was it? His dad like trying to make a contract with Barcelona. Which is interesting yeah. because Napkin. I think they're playing. Yes, that Newell Old Boys. I believe they will have. Week, I believe or, they will have just played them or something like that. Uh, we're recording this in advance. Uh, yeah, but you know what, guys, have fun, enjoy it. And next week we'll be back with uh, season two, episode one. It's gonna be a good one, I think. Mm-hmm. We got the pop eleven on deck. Uh, this one's about cult heroes. We're doing a lot of like biographical stuff. This show. I like it. Um, l- one more time for the people in the back. The way I'm defining cult heroes here is. People who are just important to their club, but might not be like, you know, superstars, right? So, yep. for example, Robin Friday, cult hero, George Best, just a cool guy, not a cult hero. <laughs> I mean, a l- little bit more than the cool guy. Like he's he's a legend, but right. he's he's very well known. Exactly, and that's a, why a cult heroes a bit more niche. Yeah, a bit niche. Uh, I will say there are a couple players on here who are uh, pretty well known, just because. Uh, I was having trouble like getting to the the deeper stories and to be fair I found a lot of amazing Italian guys and I didn't want this to be all Italian guys mm. so boopity boopity all right okay that's highbrow high, high stuff there yeah. uh, scusi it's all Italian all right let's kick it off with our New York Red Bulls legend Buna Condul Buna Condul in goal Buna Condul was a Senegalese goalkeeper he played for Colorado Rapids and New York Red Bulls he may not have been the most gifted He may not have been the longest tenured, but one thing is for sure. When he was between the posts, it was always Buna time. (laughs) That's right. In In the first game of the 2007 season, he arrived wearing traditional Senegalese garb and made a diving stop in the last minute to secure a 2-1 win over DC United. In an interview that year, he created his trademark phrase, Buna time, which grew and spread as a chant in the supporters section. Uh, This guy was like... If you look up his highlights, it's crazy. He just like comes out of the goal and he he like is a very aggressive goalkeeper. There's some one particular highlight where he slides out, kind of gets the ball a little bit, but the attacker still manages to take it back. And rather than turning around and like backing up to get back in goal, he just stands right there in front of him. He doesn't dive down to collect the ball. He just stands there and the the attacker's thrown off and he actually just kicked it right into his hands. <laughs> yeah, man, I'd be like, what, what's going on here? <laughs> I'm not used to this. He now, he now runs a, um, a goalkeeping camp and I tried to connect with him on LinkedIn, but uh, to no avail. But you might ask, what is Buna time? Mm-hmm. Right? Uh, Buna himself said it best in this interview with CNN. Buna time, the way I see it, the way I kind of come up with it, 
be the best on the field. Whatever you do in life, as long as it's positive, it can be a time. If you're in your, your name is Aisha, look right now your job is your reporter, Aisha time. You're gonna be, you're gonna try to be the best on whatever you do. When I step on the field, bonus time. When I'm off the field, just regular person, it's bonus time. When I'm home with the family, bonus time. Even my religion, it's bonus time. Try to do everything at your max. So after later on, you don't regret anything. That's why bonus time is all about positive. Anybody can take it and make it their own time. But when it's when it's bonus time, you know it's bonus time. When it's Buna time, you know it's Buna time. And I actually really love that idea. Like, it, yeah. he's right. Like, yeah. you know, because it is about positivity and not regretting anything. It's just so funny. Buna time. So Everything is Buna time. Bro. He's 24-7 in Buna time. Yo, That's nuts. for you, what do you do? You're out here producing? You're producer Eric? Yeah. It's, it's Eric time. It's Eric time. It's, no, this, right this is Alexi time. You no. absolutely killed it with with, Buna. with, with all the segments. Well, it's Buna time. It's Buna time. Uh, so that's Buna Condol. He's in goal. Uh, what time zone is that? What? Buna, Buna time? time? <laughs> it's all, it's every time zone. Every all time encompassing, zone. bro. Plus six GMT. But I, don't, I don't understand. Um, here's the thing. The next person on this list, yeah. this is like the, the biggest name who is... Kind of, he's he's kind of a big a big deal. So this oh, one, okay. I, you know, I will say. Okay. There's just my little preface. Okay. Well, next up, we have John O'Shea. He might be the biggest name on the list, so some folks would debate his cult status, but in our opinion, he fits the mold. O'Shea was a hardworking, versatile player who could play any position. That was proven in 2007 when Man United faced the Spurs. United no, goalkeeper. Just Spurs? Just Spurs? Spurs. Why is everyone putting the everywhere? You got the Spurs. Spurs. You said the MLS. The MLS. That was me, bro. Oh, um, sorry. I, no one saw I pointed to Jordan. It was know. Eric time. I had to, had to give that go. <laughs> <laughs> Eric time. <laughs> right now it's Amy time. Amy so time, I can Amy say time. things however I want. Um, United goalkeeper Edwin Van Sar suffered a broken nose. Van der Sar. Van der Sar. Van Amy der Sar. Time. Amy time. <laughs> but United had already used all of their subs. O'Shea stepped in to save the day, denying his countrymate Robbie Keane from scoring and securing the win. Later that season, he came on as a sub for renowned striker Wayne Rooney and scored the winning goal against Liverpool. That season, his shooting accuracy, no, was 100%. Yeah. No, that's yeah, wild. Every shot he had was on target. Wow. And 80% of his shots ended up in the net. Not bad for someone known for their prowess on the defensive side of the field. And of course, United fans will most fondly remember O'Shea nutmegging. Yeah. I don't know what that means. Oh, nutmegging. Oh, no. It's like, oh, it's like a, <laughs> really? it, it's called the tunnel sometimes. <laughs> it's where you pl play the ball through someone's legs and you collect it on the other side oh, so you okay. make them look a fool. Yeah, I don't know what that is. Yeah, I'm, the ca I'm the ultra casual <laughs> the ultra here, okay? Casual. Oh, no, <laughs> we, You know, one day we do. <laughs> so distraught. <laughs> he really was. Um, Eric time. You Eric's, know, one day, one day we are going to do like, maybe this should have been in an earlier episode, but like the terminology. Oh, we'll, we should we'll, do, yeah. We'll get there. Yeah, we should do it. We got to um, test the casual. But yeah. for now, with the terminology. I just learned oh, what not Maggie We could do a game where like we make up fake definitions and she has to pick what it is i like games oh. wait so either okay way, so anyway he's not um someone. he was most fondly remembered for nutmegging the legendary 
Louise Figo. Louise Figo. Figo. John O'Shea nutmeg Louise Figo, bro. I would pay to as see the that. highlight of his career. Skills, bro. Tackers. <laughs> That's the O'Shea Tackers. <laughs> um, O'Shea had lengthy spells at Man United and Sunderland, and also was a cherished member of the Irish national team. The president of Ireland, Michael D. Higgins, called him one of the most inspirational, committed, and admired members of our national teams. John O'Shea That's was pretty high honors. Yeah, and I, I'm I'm surprised that you I don't know maybe you do like him a lot. I'm surprised you don't feel more strongly about mm-hmm. him, producer Eric, because you're talking about total football playing every position. That's John O'Shea, bro. Um, I did not know that he was actually came on and played keeper and actually had a save. I I think was that in the league. Yeah, I didn't put this. I didn't put this in here, but when I was doing the research, I'm pretty sure he is the only player to ever play every single position on the pitch for Man United in their history. Every single position. He plays. He's played every single position. He literally There's every single no position. There's no way John O'Shea was playing like on the wings. Does this computer in front of you have internet? <laughs> <laughs> left winger John O'Shea yeah, you're, bro. you're saying I, could, I could google Look John O'Shea up. left wing. I, I do vaguely remember reading something about how John O'Shea was basically the blueprint for guys like uh, James Milner like these yeah. every man who can basically slot in anywhere not the best player on the team but highly versatile can really stick him anywhere and um barca has a guy like that sergi busquets they are not sergi busquets uh, sergi roberto sergi roberto yeah. yeah they play him absolutely everywhere bro john o'shea fucking legends. but he normally played defensive yeah he, he mostly yells yeah, like a defensive mid pretty but much then like a center he, back no he's like a center back wasn't he he was a center back okay primarily allegedly He's also a goalkeeper. Nah, he's, he's, he's yeah. a keeper and a forward, <laughs> and he's played everywhere. So he does it all. who knows anymore? Uh, oh yeah, producer Eric. I actually just see him typing on his laptop. He pulled. He just ordered a John O'Shea kit. A John O'Shea, <laughs> jersey, a John O'Shea uh, original jersey, bro. Uh, look, it's a Sunderland na- kit. Of course, black cats all day. <laughs> Not gonna lie, I kind of want a Buna one now. Buna Condor Buna legends. Oh, Buna time. Buna time. Uh, it's okay. Buna time. It's uh, to- it's uh, Tony Hibbert time. Tony <laughs> Hibbert is the next one here. Uh, when it comes to Everton's cult hero, there is not much room for debate. The answer is obvious. It's Tony Hibbert. Hibbert joined the youth team in 1991. He moved to the senior team in 1998, and he retired in 2016. He dedicated 25 years to that club. Uh, so he is kind of like a one-club man. If I remember correctly, while I was researching the one-club men, he was actually one of the guys who I was looking at, but I ended up omitting him because he wasn't. All that interesting. I also have a gigantic uh, cult heroes short list over here. Oh so God. when you oh, there's a lot of if, names if, on that. Yeah, list. Yeah, yeah. So, oh, so big legs. Yeah, thank you, bro. Thank you. Uh, I've been practicing. Is that how it works? Uh, I uh, so I got names. If you want to do a cult hero, and I got I did all the research for you. I put too oh, much. I put you. too much shook on there, you, bro. You're too kind. Of course. Too much shook's on there. Yeah, but he's not on our list. But he's on my, my short list. My Whatever. Look, boy. Back to Tony Hibbert. The most. Get me worked <laughs> up over here, bro. Easy. <laughs> the most surprising stat from Hibbert's tenure is probably the fact that over those two plus decades, he scored a whopping zero goals in competitive play. He's a center back. He's not expected to score, but after 25 years, you're expected to not bundle, man, bundle one hole. Yeah. Give him anything. Let him take a pen for God's yeah. sake. His goal drought led to the Everton supporters hanging a banner that read, if Hibbert scores, we riot. <laughs> uh, to reward his dedication to the club, Hibbert was given a testimonial match in 2012 against AEK Athens, 
which is, uh, I, I believe, a you know far left uh, aligned club, which is fucking solidarity. Love it. As fate would have it, this was the lucky match where Hibbert would score his only goal. Amazing. He was he. They had a, a free kick, and normally Leighton Baines was on free kicks, a free kick wizard. They said, "Fuck it, Tony, you can have it." And he just struck it, and it went in, and scenes of celebration were sparked. Fans spilled onto riot? the pitch. They rioted. They bang him in. I, I put a little link there if you guys want to watch the video, but fans spilled onto the pitch. They like stormed the pitch. Everyone celebrated with Tony for his only ever goal. I as love that. No yeah. way, man. Off so a cool. direct free kick. So he cool. just bangs it? Yeah, he banged oh it. Oh my God. Spectacular. <laughs> people, oh, and this Pe wasn't the end of the match. It was like 50 minutes. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> look, at him, look at him. He's like, do I hit it? Do I? Uh, what people, do? Uh, people were like, damn, they should have had Hibbert on free kicks. <laughs> like he's fucking Something from the training ground too. Look at that. So cool though to see the fans all spill oh, yeah, onto the pitch. I'm watching the Run around, now. celebrate with him. What a moment, man. Like, those are the stories. Those are the good stories of soccer. You know what I mean? Yeah. There's so much, like, beauty in the game. Um, I don't know if it exists anymore, though. Um, so, <laughs> Oh, my God. It was it was not a good shot either. He, <laughs> no, just, it just, he just drilled he it just low drilled and hard it. and it yeah. somehow trickled in and passed a bunch of guys. Um, we, we lined up our pop 11 this week in a 3-4-3. So you're going to close okay. out the defensive line here, Amy. Okay. So next up, we have John DeWolf. 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 Uh, Dutch, Dutch guy, I think. Not all cult heroes are as tenured as O'Shea or Hibbert. Next up is John DeWolf, a Dutch center back who earned cult hero status for his performance over just one season and partially for his name. The aptly named DeWolf found himself on his way to Wolverhampton in 1994. The manager was so impressed with him that he made that he named him captain. Yeah. DeWolf was captaining Wolves. <laughs> How fitting. Oh, boy. <laughs> a little bit of a mouthful. Uh, later that season, DeWolf would go on to score a hat trick in the FA Cup quarters. Pretty remarkable for a center back. Unfortunately, injuries combined with managerial changes cut DeWolf's career at Wolves short, and he headed back to Holland in 1996. So for me, this is like this guy is a cult hero because this man literally played like one year maybe yeah. two at the club was a captain scored a hat trick had the same name as the club and then left it's yeah like, what the fuck like that's nuts like, like a little tornado he just like came in no and one would know him unless you're like a wolves fan and you would remember him really fondly you go oh, i was our captain for a couple of years like yeah that's 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 score a hat trick as a center back is wild yeah it was fucking nuts wow. um moving on into the midfield we're gonna get a little political here this is a uh, Italian guy named Paolo Solier. He played for uh, Pro Vercelli and he played for Perugia. Uh, a lot of this, I will, I will preface, comes from a guy named Will McGee. A lot of uh, this research is from an article that he wrote for Vice back in the day about this guy. Uh, and uh, Will McGee runs a project called Cult FC with a K, K U L T F C. It's a really cool project. So there's a newsletter. Uh, he's a brilliant writer. Go check it out. Subscribe. Uh, Solier, Paolo Solier, a working class hero among leftist Italian soccer fans. He's best known for his iconic pre-match photo of him dressed in a red jersey, long sleeves, holding up a clenched fist. He's got shaggy hair, a bushy beard, uh, and he was, if you look him up, literally you type in Paolo Solier, that's the photo that comes up. It's on the cover of his book and everything. Uh, Solier, a communist 
was active in left-wing political activism throughout his football career, and he would perform that clenched fist salute before every match in a show of solidarity with workers. When Solier started his career, he was employed in a fiat factory, and at the time, factories were hotbeds of left-wing movements in a divided Italy. Around the time he started his soccer career, Italy was going through their hot autumn, which was characterized by a series of strikes across various industries protesting against inequality. This was the late 60s. Uh, this would grow into what they call the years of lead. Uh, this was a period of unrest, violence, and upheaval that was marked by a wave of both far-left and far-right incidents of political terrorism and violent clashes, and this would last well into the 80s. This was like, it was Italy was crazy for like two decades. Mm-hmm. Uh, Solier did not support the violence, but he believed in the movement. He said, quote, 1968 has contributed to the social and civil progress of Italy. I think feminism, ecology, movements for civil rights, everything was born then. The main failure, if failure is the right word for it, was the illusion that we could change the world. The world has not changed, but the 1968 movement made it a better place. He continued his raised fist salute through all the lower leagues, but as his career got bigger, he was signed by Serie B club Perugia, and he was torn on whether to continue doing the salute because he was like, now people are actually watching mm-hmm. me. And he said, the fist was natural. I did it in the lower leagues in my early career, turning to my companions in the stands. When I arrived in Perugia, I thought, do I do it again or do I stop? Uh, he ended up continuing to do it. Uh, at the peak of his career in 1976, he released an autobiography called Kicks, Spits, and Headers, the autobiographical reflections of an accidental footballer. So even he called himself an accidental footballer. He was like, I'm just a fucking communist who happens to play soccer. (laughs) Uh, He discussed his association with the Workers' Vanguard, which was an organization in Italy in the 70s, and their newspaper, The Daily Worker. He discussed Italian society, the ethics of the dressing room, and the political implications of the game uh, in his book. What I found interesting was that he did not support the idea of ultras. He believed that they were wasting their energy on match day while remaining politically disengaged. Um, there's a glowing neon sign pointing to Eric. Whoa, whoa, uh, whoa. <laughs> are you politically disengaged? Hell yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, in his book, he wrote, the supporters say, let's just get the banners ready and all is well. It's really a shame to see so much creativity, so much energy channeled into the condom of the stadium thrown away wasted oh man i love this guy guy sick he hated signing autographs uh in his biography he wrote this issue of signing autographs is really a dangerous mania these hurried scribbles are an example of one of the rules of this system to give value to things that don't have any and as for the iconic photo of him fist raised furrowed brow messy beard in 2013 he said i never liked it and not because of my closed fist, but because of my grumpy face. I'm not a grumpy guy. I like uh-huh. to laugh. And uh, to this day, he remains a divisive figure in Italy. So uh, I want to read his book. Yeah, dude. It's uh, You can get it for free, actually. There's a free PDF of it online. Because the place oh. that published his work, they translated it to English, made it free. That's I love sick. that. It's pretty sick. Or it's like pay what you want or whatever. Cool. Um, all right. Up next in the midfield, we have our boy... Robin Friday. If you listened to the previous segment, you already know all about him. But in a nutshell, he was a Colt 45 drinking, police impersonating, LSD taken, three time divorcee who impaled himself on a spike, kidnapped a swan, joined a hippie commune, danced naked, robbed a graveyard, 
grab defenders nuts and at the end of it all scored tons of goals and won Reading's player of the year over and over again over and over and over what a legend over and over um yeah he's a legend Eric would you say he's your new favorite player he's up there he's for sure 100% up there top five maybe I'll tell you what. Recent new players. Recent <laughs> new heard players. Of? You've heard <laughs> of? That I've just heard of. He's top five. Top five recent guys I've heard of. Well, you know who's number one for me? This guy. This guy right here that I'm about to talk about. Ezio Vandrame, the goal poet. I read about this guy, dude, and I was like, this <laughs> is now poet? the goal poet. This is now my new favorite player of all time. Like, literally of all time. Oh, I can't wait to hear That's it. That's why I want to talk to Luch- uh, Luch- Luciano. Luciano. I want to talk to Luciano about this guy because I'm like, dude, you know who this guy is? Uh, he played at Vicenza. He played at Padova. Uh, I made Vendrame the captain of this team because, plain and simple, he seemed like the coolest character. On his Wikipedia page, he's not just listed as a footballer. The first profession listed for him is writer. And I love when art and sport meet. Uh, Vendrame, he grew up an orphan, and he ended up a player described as a genius, icon, and symbol of a football that no longer exists. Soccer wasn't always the first thing on his mind. Regarding some of his play early in his career, he was quoted as saying, I played on the wing, very wide, right on the touchline. Only after many games did the coach understand what I was doing. It's because I wanted to stay in the shade. (laughs) 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 Which is like, hey, that's kind of me. He had a cheeky thing he did when he wasn't being pressured. If he had the ball and he had time and space, he would sometimes stand on top of the ball with both feet, Put his hand above his eyes as if he was scanning the field for a pass. So it's almost like some Kasi Flavor type. That, that shit. is exactly oh, yeah. Kasi Flavor like, oh. from South Africa. Yeah, he's bro. like, you want to wow. give me, you want to give me some time? I'm just gonna stand on the ball and like look around for a pass. <laughs> wow. Uh, he's often viewed as a player who never lived up to his potential. Vendrame dazzled as a youth player. He had a good run with Vicenza before moving to Napoli, where he had a falling out with the manager. He only played for them three times, I think. He then moved to Padova, where there were three incidents in particular that made him a cult hero. Incident one, in a dull 0-0 game against Cremonese, which had been fixed beforehand to be a draw, Vendrame wanted to entertain the crowd, who were understandably bored by a predetermined 0-0 draw. Ezio received the ball near the opposing penalty box. He turned around. He dribbled all the way back towards his own goal, beating his own players in the process, faked a shot, rounded his goalkeeper, and stopped the ball on his own goal line, He then turned around and started playing again. Legend has it that a fan died of a heart attack, (laughs) to which Vendrame responded, if you're faint of heart, don't come to see my matches. (laughs) Uh, At some point, Vendrame befriended Italian singer-songwriter Piero Ciampi, who introduced him to the world of writing and poetry. Vendrame respected Ciampi so much that during one match, he noticed Ciampi in the stands and so he stopped. The, he picked up the ball up with his hands, stopped the game, and went over to pay a tribute to Chompy. He wanted the crowd to recognize that he was there, so give him a round of applause. Like, hey, this is a great artist who's here. Uh, Vendrame said, football becomes a very vulgar thing in front of a poet like Piero. <laughs> um, I don't think that I put any further stuff in this about him, but I want to go off script for just one second. So him and, and Piero Chompy, their relationship was very interesting. They were like artist friends and they would like you know get together and write and talk about art and get super drunk and get in crazy arguments and that was unfortunately like kind of the last they left on that note um they were drunk in a tavern and you know uh piero 
they got in an argument. Piero stormed out, and then that was the last time they ever spoke because she was found dead. Um, and there is a video that's a really, really touching video from the 70s sometime, or maybe it's the 80s. Maybe it's even the 90s because he looks pretty old. Yes, yeah, probably the 90s. Uh, Ezio was on a program, and he kind of read a poem that he wrote about uh, about um, Ciampi because he meant a lot to him. He's like his best friend, and that's the last time he got to see him. Uh, I went into a Discord that I'm a part of and had someone tran uh, translate the poem. So he said... He just read this on, on national TV in Italy, and he's, he looks just devastated as he's reading it. But he says, the, the poem is, The sidewalk was crumbling, worn out by waiting and by unforgettable footsteps. I, the only guest, out of fear rushed into a tavern, and callousness having broken out, didn't come out again. Therefore, I don't know if you're still on distant lights. In the meantime, between nothing and nothingness, arms crossed over my head, I prepare myself for anything and continue to sing. And it's just like a soccer player to do that. Wow. That doesn't happen anymore. He, he's an intellectual. He's an intellectual. He's a he genius, reminds me bro. A little bit of uh, Andrea Pirlo. Yes. A little bit. Well, here's yeah. Pirlo comes up later, not in this guy, but later in this in this eleven. So that was uh, the picking up the ball, stopping the match. That was number two. Here's the third thing that really made him a cult hero. Uh, Vendrane once was offered 7 million lira, which I think with inflation and conversion is like $40,000 uh, current USD. Uh, he was offered 7 million lira to play badly and throw the match. He accepted the offer since his normal bonus was only 22,000. So 7 million versus 22,000. During the match, however, the opposing fans were jeering him and insulting him and like, ah, oh, you're playing like shit. You're so trash. You're so trash. And he was like, fuck that. He got pissed and he decided to show them what he could actually <laughs> do. He went on to score twice and they won the match 3-2. Uh, his bonus was, he ended up getting 40,000 lira instead of 7 million because he got a bonus for scoring. When we say you go down in the fourth, you go down in the fourth, man. He, his, his second goal was particularly remarkable. This is from Il Nostro Calcio. Vendrame lines up to take a corner kick. First, however... He blows his nose with a corner flag. Oh. He's quoted as saying, how disgusting those players who blow their noses with their bare hands on the pitch. <laughs> and he then declares, facing the stand, that he will put the ball into the net from the corner kick. And he does just that, scoring an Olympico. Needless to say, he did not get the seven million. <laughs> but it's so great that he went to the crowd and said, watch this, I'm going to score. Blows his nose into the quarter flag. After leaving then, all, then, all the boogers on the quarter flag. How many of these matches have been fixed in this story alone? The first knows? one was yeah, a nil-nil draw, then Italians the second one. And the Listen to this. Thing, At one point, he's playing AC Milan, and he nutmegs Johnny Rivera, Italian fucking legend. He nutmegs Johnny Rivera, and he feels bad and immediately apologizes. <laughs> he, like, turns around in the middle of play and just, like, sorry, sorry, sorry. Because oh, he said, he says, because Johnny was an artist of football and humiliating him like this, even if mine was an instinctive gesture, I was very sorry. Uh, after his career was over, he went on to coach youth teams, but he ended up getting fed up with the parents, so he quit. <laughs> and he said, quote, I would only train a team of orphans. Oh, God. <laughs> in, in, oh, man. in 2002, he published a book. He's actually published nine books, but wow. he published a book in 2002 called If You Send Me to the Stands, I'll Enjoy It. <laughs> so it's, it's really great. Uh, a couple other side notes I have from his life. Uh, he, these are quotes. He says, I hate the holidays viscerally. On 23 December, I lock myself up at home writing my poems and playing the guitar. I reemerge after epiphany. The weight of the holidays is unbearable for me. Um, in 1969, it's the last bit on him, 
in one of, you got to remember he was an orphan uh, in 1969 in one of the coldest winters in living memory Vendrame decided to buy himself a proper coat it cost 70,000 lira the average salary of Italians in those days was 120,000 lira a month so he spent over half a month's salary on this coat while walking through Siena he saw a gypsy boy asking for charity uh, and Ezio didn't think about it for a second he gave him the coat and when he was asked about it he just said he was colder than me so, oh, this guy is like such I a know. warm. He's an artist. That's what yeah. that's what soccer doesn't have anymore. It doesn't have artists. <laughs> Empathy. Yeah, it's, it's all just gone. it's just money it's now. All bro. Money. It's, it's all money. It's all money and haircuts. Yeah, <laughs> money it's all haircuts. vanity, dude. It's so, yeah. it's so shitty, wow. bro. Yeah. And political was, statements and yeah, and all I like the political statements, but for, not even. But the political statements the, are also rooted in money, yeah. right? Yeah, it's like how can we latch on to a cause that's going to get us the most money? Not about. I love an honest. Problems. I love an honest political working like class footballer. That's why I like Paulo Solier. But yeah. this Ezio guy's an artist, bro. To me, like the closest thing is. It's gonna sound weird, but it might be, in a way, like Zlatan. Maybe in a way, but he's not really a, an artist like that. That's what's weird. He's just cocky. <laughs> yeah, it's like Zlatan minus all of the empathy. Zlatan is the most <laughs> self-centered asshole ever. Yeah, that's true. Um, Amy, you want to round out the midfielders here for us? Yeah, uh, we have up next Mehmet Scholl. Mehmet. Skoll. Skoll? No, Scholl. Scholl. Mehmet. Yeah, Mehmet Scholl. Among Bayern fans, Scholl is a familiar name, but on a general scale, it may have faded over time. Regardless, Mehmet Skull, Shoal. Shoal. like Doctor Shoals, like the yeah, foot thing. Doctor Shoals is what you like, know us <laughs> from now on, Amy. <laughs> well, you know what's funny? I used to have a Mehmet Shoal jersey, Byron, and I would wear that to training when I was like young, like I was like eleven. And uh, the 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 guy who he wasn't like our main manager, but he like coached us for our training sessions. He used to play for Columbus Crew or something, but he called me Doctor. <laughs> that was That's like funny. that's what he called me because <laughs> I because because of Shoal, right? Shoal. Yeah. Um. Okay, regardless, Mehmet Scholl is one of the most creative midfielders to play for Bayern. He was like on and off the pitch. He was liked. He was liked. Jeez Louise, increase the the font size, Amy. (laughs) On and off the pitch. Yeah, I think I need to turn my brightness up. But unfortunately, he suffered numerous injuries. As a matter of fact, Scholl was the unlucky, had the unlucky honor of being one of the one of the best German players to never play in a World Cup. Isn't that weird? That sucks. Just because of bad timing with injuries. That sucks for him. He was so beloved in Germany, though, that over 100,000 supporters signed a petition to get him on the 2006 World Cup squad. Unfortunately, uh, the boss, Jürgen Klinsmann, wasn't convinced, and he left the 36-year-old Scholl off the team. That's... I know. Why? Oh, that's, it, that goes in Klinsman's uh, history of uh, checkered past of decision making. I guess I don't know. But I like, love Klin, I love Klinsman. Uh, yeah, well, I, why I, couldn't they just let him on? The, like even I if know. he well, didn't. And also, he well, it's not up spots. to the people, Amy. Yeah. And and he's he's old. But, but he's only thirty six. But, but you know, like, only thirty six. No, no, I know. Ancient. That's like that's like. like I'm actually with Amy. I think that they should have because only because it was 2006. It was in Germany, bro. Like, yeah, let Mehmet Scholl on the fucking team. He, he especially, like, if... You have one person in charge for a reason. It's because of things like this. Yeah, like, and everyone wants one guy on the it's team. It's Germany. They don't the give a fuck about your feelings, bro. Like, if, if I was on play, that team, if I was managing that team, I would have taken him. Yeah, and but I also feel him. like... 
and started him. If he was, <laughs> and then lost. <laughs> they are, they did. <laughs> so they did bad anyways. Um. All right. Anyway, during his career, he released two comp <laughs> two compilation mixtapes. Hell yeah. Featuring songs from The Flaming Lips, Mercury Rev, Cake, Coldplay, Oasis, Jimmy Eat World, and more. I'm immediately what? downloading these after this show because <laughs> yeah. I want to listen. The Those playlist. are some great collabs. Like <laughs> yeah. how like. How well, do you it's, get it's just, those? It's just a mixtape. He's not on him. It's him comp making a comp. Oh. Yeah. So it's like him making mixtapes for like, he's like, hey, I love these bands. So I put a comp yeah, out. No doctor oh. Shoals, DJ Shoals. I thought he was like, like, DJ yeah. um, He's got okay. all, all the bangers on there. <laughs> no, that's what I call music volume. Fuck, good one. That one petered out. <laughs> Lost all of them. I was, the I was waiting for the ending <laughs> and <laughs> quite the anticipation. Very anticlimactic. Um, he also hosted a monthly radio show. So very much into music. We love it. Yep. Also a bit of an artist, if you yeah, will. Hell yeah. Nowadays, he's taken up nine pin bowling <laughs> and supposedly is a Buddhist according to Wikipedia. Um, so he's found he's found some Zen. Yeah. How how is he a Buddhist? I is gotta it, ask him, dude. Isn't he a Turkish guy? Yes, well, I mean, Turkish originally? descent. Turkish yeah. descent. What do you mean how is he a Buddhist? I think he's anybody decided to stop practicing you can't Buddhism. switch. <laughs> you're allowed you're not to like switch locked in. You're like locked in <laughs> when <Yeah>. you're bored. <laughs> Who let this guy switch? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they trade you gotta trade one though. They had to send a Buddhist over to yeah. that was a trade. Eye for an eye. Um Let's move on to our three strikers at the top. I'm going to start with this guy. His name is Dario Hubner. Um, the name does sound uh, German, but he's just German descent. He actually is Italian, born in Italy, does not speak any German. Hmm. Uh, he's played for Cesena, for Brescia, and for Piacenza. Um, here's the thing. A common through line among these cult heroes, obviously so far, there's been two, really. Working class mentality or art, because that's just the ones I picked. Uh, Dario Hubner, he's no different. He's very working class. Uh, although his name appears German, like I said, he's actually Italian, and he was born in Muja, which is right near the Slovenian border, coincidentally from the same state as the goal poet Ezio Vendrame, right? So they're churning out motherfuckers over there. Mm. Due to his large frame and woolly hair, Hubner was known as Il Bisonte, which is the bison. And although he was known as that, he preferred to call himself uh Tatanka, which is the Sioux word for bison, after he saw Dances with Wolves. <laughs> and he was like, I, I want to be called Tatanka. Love that, Kevin Cosner. Uh, Dario left school at age 14 to start working as a bakery boy. Then at 16, he became a blacksmith in an aluminum window and door factory. And that's when Dario, just for fun, started playing soccer at 16. Uh, his quote from this was about leaving. He said, that was a real job. Then I became a footballer, and it was simply the thing I liked to do. Sounds like my origin story. My dad know. owns a metal shop, and now I'm a baker boy. Oh, shit. You went backwards. <laughs> I went backwards with it, yeah. Uh, Next on the docket is a footballer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The ripe age of 35. Put me in, coach. Uh, and then he's going to become a Buddhist. Uh, <laughs> Hubner played for his local amateur team, and then he was discovered, and that's when he began his meteoric rise. You, you guys are going to be impressed by, by this guy's career. During his time at Brescia, Hubner gets a chance to play alongside a young Andrea Pirlo and an old Roberto Baggio. Hey. So he gets to play alongside both players. It's insane. Rega Icons. Regarding Pirlo, Dario said, he was a phenomenon, very polite, the strongest I've ever played with. Uh, Hubner was such a talented goal scorer that the hard-to-impress Fabio Capello said of him, Hubner has been among the top three or four strikers in Italy for 10 years. He has the wickedness of a great goal scorer. He moves like a true center forward. And it was true. 
Il Bisonte is one of two players to have led Syria A, Syria B, and Syria C1 in goals. He was the lead goal scorer in all of these leagues at different times. banging him in, isn't it? There's always a vice, however, and with Hubner, it was Sigs and Grappa. Hell yeah. The, The Brescia president even said, Without grappa and cigarettes, Hubner would be the strongest of all time. Mm. This is a quote from Hubner himself. Before taking the field in the underpass, I always smoked. Just a few puffs, eh? Not the whole cigarette. (laughs) (laughs) Even between the first and second half, it soothed and relaxed me. Everyone had their own. Some got massages. Some drank mineral salts. I went to the bathroom and lit it up. Did the coaches complain? No, they knew knew that's how I was. I liked grappa too, but I didn't show up to matches drunk. In 2001, he was offered a big money move to the Premier League. He was offered a move to Leeds. Nowadays, you take the bag, but he turned it down because he wanted to stay near his wife and play close to home. Respect. Aww. That's dude. a chance to rapper shit, bro. Since Cigarettes, cigarettes. <laughs> cigarettes and loving Love his wife. wife. <laughs> this guy is like the chance to rapper of fucking channel Taste his whole persona off. Well, of we this found guy. his inspiration. Yo. <laughs> uh, I got a, yo, I got a chance to rapper a rundown of this guy. You got to uh, reach out. Since retiring, he plays now with amateur futsal players as a goalie a position that he enjoyed playing in pro in practice sessions as a pro. He liked playing goal, and now he just chills and fuck, plays pickup. He lives in uh, a place called uh, Pasarera, which is near Crema, in a renovated farmhouse. He's the technical director of the Lori Academy, which is a team of disabled kids. He owns a bar with his brother-in-law. He tends a vegetable garden, and he loves going fishing and mushroom picking. <laughs> this wow. guy did it right, man. He did it beast yeah yeah it sounds like he's he's, he's living the life he's with living Baggio, out his Pierlo, best smoking cigs drinking grappa and banging in goals yeah banging him in in all the leagues in every single league in, yeah. yeah the holland of every single Re- rejecting league the money yeah to stay to, in italy yeah. and just chill italy with his wife dude this guy's living the fucking dream i, like I, I love this guy what a boss man Saint yeah man. respect to this guy yeah. yeah all right up next we have norbert dickel Norbert Dickel. <laughs> Norbert Dickel has been the stadium announcer for Dortmund for over 30 years, starting his announcer career there in 1992. And while that's what he's known as today, Dickel was actually an influential player for Dortmund in the 80s. In 1988, he scored a hat trick against Hanover, which was at the time the fastest hat trick in Bundesliga history. Pretty impressive. Hell yeah. The following year, he scored twice in the cup final against Werder, Werder Bremen. Ver, Ver, Werder? Werder? Werder Bremen? Bremen. Yeah, Werder, I'd say Werder. Uh, leading Dortmund to an eventual 4-1 victory. Dickel, unfortunately, struggled with injuries. Seems to, seems to be a theme in my stories today. <laughs> uh, and played his last match for Dortmund in December n- 1989, scoring a last-minute equalizer. How crazy is that? Wow, the, so the last time that he kicked the ball, he scored like a... It was like a 90th-minute equalizer. He bangs yeah. him in, isn't it? <laughs> so he didn't really play. Like, his career really wasn't that long. Yeah, he, it, was, it was kind of a, a bummer. After his retirement, he worked a few different jobs, including as a salesman of driving drums for conveyor belt systems, then for fitted kitchens, and finally a job with a sporting goods manufacturer. That's like the most German-ass jobs to have. Like, they're like, we, uh, I manufacture driving drums. Like, all right, Norbert, like, these that's good, yeah. yeah. Uh, they have great deals on these drums. Uh, in 1992, Norbert 
or Nobby, Nobby as, Dickle, as he's known, <laughs> took over the announcer job for Dortmund. However, he did a lot more than announce, including identifying sponsors and cultivating contracts in lieu of a proper marketing department. He put those uh, those sales, sales skills to use. How amazing is that, though? He gets like this is like again, just totally different time. It's yeah. not even that long ago, but ninety two. He gets. He gets on as a announcer yeah. and is like, yeah, I can go close to Also, deals like too. running yeah. their marketing <laughs> department. <laughs> bye, 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 bye. Rule number one always be, be closing. Always be closing. Now, 30 plus years down the line, Nobby says, I still regard it as a great honor to have this job. I am just as nervous before every match as I was before the first one. Yeah, good old Nobby. Very Dickel. humble. That's awesome, yeah. Uh, rounding out our strikers and all of our players, then we got a chairman and a manager for you. But rounding out our players, Igor, Igor Proti, which is uh, weird. Igor is like, you know, Russian name or Proti. East, Eastern, Eastern European, European. Very Eastern European. But Proti, Italian. And also very Italian yeah, at the same this time. Guy, this guy's a beast. Uh, so the other player, remember I mentioned Dario Hubner was one of yes. two. One of two. The other player to lead Syria A, Syria B, and C1 in goals is Igor Proti. That's insane. He actually wow. had a great quote about it. He said, it's a great privilege being the capo conigliere. That's the cop, like the top goal scorer, capo top striker. Being the capo conigliere twice in Syria C, once in Syria B, and once in Syria A. Yet sometimes I ask myself, do top players play in Syria B and Syria C? <laughs> <laughs> so he's like, yeah, I guess I'm the best, but I wasn't even playing at the highest level for a lot of it. Uh, his career started at... Livorno, which another left-wing club, let's fucking go. But he wasn't turning any heads. Proti had all the makings of a journeyman, but in 1992, at age 25, he started to bloom. So age 25, you know, it's, eh, it's uh, maybe it's a little far in your career. He stood 5'7". He had long, ragged hair and an unkempt beard. He was no nonsense, though, when it came to scoring goals. Even more surprisingly, he was a good header of the ball. For, and he's 5'7". How many goals did Messi score with this head, right? Fucking short short guy quite uh, a few I'll have well, where's now. that sandboard when you need it <laughs> yeah uh, Proti helped Body get promoted to Serie A where he scored 24 goals but it wasn't enough and Body went right back down he then earned a move to Lazio which is whack because they're like fascists but he couldn't impress and then he went to Reggiana where he again helped the club get promoted to Serie A he finally returned to Livorno where he played out the rest of his career they loved him so much there this is the coolest thing about him they wanted to retire his number 10 jersey so no one could wear it again but Proti's love for the club was so great that during the ceremony, he said the number 10 jersey, he doesn't want it retired because he wants to, quote, give somebody back the dream to wear it one day. So he was like at the ceremony when they're going to retire. He was like, actually, no. <laughs> but we so, planned this whole thing and we we're going to retire the jersey. So pretty amazing that he was like, you know what? I want someone else to have the joy of wearing number mm -hmm. 10 like for Livorno. It's fucking lit. So shout out to him. Um Let's move on to our manager. This guy is a fucking baller. All right. We have Barry Fry as our manager today. Larger than life figure Barry Fry has been involved in soccer in England for over 60 years. He played at nine clubs and has managed eight, claiming to have been sacked 37 times over the course of his career. Why? Like, uh, he sounds really proud of that. <laughs> uh, that's right, 37 times. In an interview with the sportsman, Fry said of his time in charge at Barnett, for five years at Barnett, they couldn't pay me or the players half the time. I'd be with the chairman on a Friday, tell him the team I'd pick for Saturday, and he'd go, 
I don't like your team, Barry. You're sacked. <laughs> and off I'd go. I'd be back in on Monday. He was a lunatic, but I loved him. He was mad, though. It was mad, though. They were good times, if a bit turbulent. Uh, sounds like it. Uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, of his 30 years managing, Barnett was the first club to stick, and Fry spent a seven-year stint there. And when it was over, rather than seeking something less turbulent, Fry went all in on chaos. Love it. Oh, yeah. His next big stint was with Peterborough, where he played every role you could imagine. Fry told the Daily Mail, the club was in bigger shit than I thought, reeling off a list of problems that include employees stealing from the club, including employees stealing from the club. It was a hellish ride for 10 years. 10 years. (laughs) I was manager for 480-odd games. Not very successfully, but I kept the club going going one way or another. I mean, 10 years. Yeah, like, to to keep, stick around 10 yeah, years. Yeah, but keep, keep, keep going because it turns into way more than 10 oh, years. God. At one point, Fry had to take over as the team's owner... <laughs> What? To keep them from falling into bankruptcy. He told sports media outlet The Sportsman, I was a fool. I've got no business expertise whatsoever, and I didn't know what I was letting myself in for. I had to sell my house in Portugal, take a second mortgage on my home, took my pension out early, and had a testimonial against Manchester United that brought in 250,000 pounds. I took over the deeds to my poor mother-in-law's house so I could access an overdraft. It was a stupid thing to do. I'd already had two heart attacks, and there I was heading for a third. This guy is so dedicated to Peterborough that he's like, I'm just going to spin all the plates I can. This man's like sweating like fucking paper slide everywhere. I can't believe he He put his mother-in-law's house at risk. He's just absolutely willing to risk it all. And that's why they love him, though. Yeah, he's a legend. Again, Fry in an interview with the Daily Mail. At one point, I was the owner, chairman, and manager. That's at the same time. <laughs> All I ever wanted was to be a silly manager, but I had to find 150,000 pounds every month to pay the wages. I'd be up until 5 a.m. trying to work out where it was coming from. At one point, Fry let Sky Sports have full access to the club to make a documentary in exchange for them covering Peter Burroughs' wages for three months. <laughs> for the three months they filmed. That's actually like, that's that was pretty genius. smart. Pretty it's genius. an incredible deal because genius. listen to what happens next. That turned out to be a genius move from Fry as the documentary was seen by Irish real estate mogul Dara McAnthony. McAnthony was moved by the documentary and took a liking to Fry. A few weeks later, McAnthony showed up to training with black cars, security, all the things a multimillionaire would have. Fry recalls, I said to me, chief exec, Bob, the fucking mafia is here. <laughs> so after that would be kind of like sketch. alarming you're like wait what is happening yeah. uh after they met and chatted mcanthony deposited hundred and fifty thousand pounds into the peterborough account as a show of goodwill fry ended up selling the club for a symbolic one pound with mcanthony paying off all debts and promising to keep the current staff for at least a year Fry was moved to director of football, which he still is to this day. It's bloody exhausting, he says. We have a meeting at the beginning of the year and I'll say, we're going to lose four million pounds this year. And Dara will say, "Okay, I'll put two million pounds. You need to find the rest and I'll look at what player we can sell. I mean, that's like 
That's cool. It's, it's a good. It's a good great, they it's a have great relationship. Like yeah. Somebody to they, like, you know, in bankroll the whole thing. right yeah. to like in, continue in, to put money. Yeah, in my research, they were considered. They were called like someone had called them like uh, the England English football's odd couple because it's like yeah. this young multimillionaire and this like seventy five or seventy eight year old <laughs> dude who's like been around the league for like ever, who has you know? seen it all and been yeah. through it all. Yeah, we need to do a cack duck. Yeah, sponsored by Dr. Scholes. <laughs> there you go. Uh, and the selling has gone well. Fry brokered a deal sending Ivan Tony to Brentford in 2020 for a club Whoa. record 10 million dollar, 10 million pound deal. Yeah, they bought Shit. him for 300,000 and he sold him for it was technically 5 million, but there was 5 million in add-ons. And add-ons so 10 yeah. million. Do- That's yeah. wild. Did yeah. not know that. Nearly Wheeling and dealing, f- Barry Fry. <laughs> Nearly four decades dedicated to Peterborough and it's easy to see why fans love Barry Fry. From the Daily Mail, I'm just a silly football nut, he grins. All my mates are retired with their feet up, but I couldn't imagine that. I get up at 8 o'clock, go to work, banter with the lads. I love it. I never want to pack it in. Never change, Barry. Never change, Barry. I just, I love that he's so, like, dedicated and passionate to something that, I mean... Like yeah. he doesn't. It, it's not. It's it more was, than a job, you know. Yeah, like you don't it was essentially a lost cause, and yeah. he was just holding on to yeah. for dear life. Like taking yeah. out his pension early. Yeah, putting his just, mom's yeah. house up. His mom's like, house is on the it, line. Yeah. Bro. I like, guess that documentary crazy. was a good Mama, idea because had that not happened, that. they wouldn't have met uh, McAnthony. I gotta say, when I was reading that, I was like, "Damn, bro, that like gives me a little bit of hope as like an artist because it's just like." Okay, cool. All that matters is like, cause we we made we made a movie. Me and Amy w- made a documentary, right? Like last year. And I was like, i you know sometimes I'm down on it. You're like, ah, fuck. No one's gonna see this. Doesn't matter. But if one person who matters sees it, that's that's what can change yeah. everything. That's all it takes. Sure. That's and why it really, you, you got to do it for the love. Yeah, not, not for the money. That's what I was gonna that's, say. That's it, lesson learned. It'll put in perspective what your dream is if you're willing to literally pull out all the stops to keep it alive yeah like, that's I, crazy. I actually that documentary is on youtube i haven't seen it i have it pulled up but yeah. it's called i think it's called yeah there's only one berry fry <laughs> it's fucking seems amazing um so the last one to round out this this uh, pop 11 it's kind of a, a sad one but uh but also there's a lot of hope in it it's uh vichai uh, uh, Srivadana Sriv- Pra Prabha. That's how oh, I'd say it. Oh man, that's a mouthful. Man, no, it sounds Russian. Srivadana <laughs> Prabha. You almost got it. He's Vichai Srivadana right? Prabha. He's Thai. Um, yeah. He. I'm gonna call him Vichai for the rest of this because I'm not saying <laughs> yes. Srivadana Prabha again. Although I just did. Uh, <laughs> everyone knows the heroic 2015-2016 Leicester City team that won the Premier League beyond all odds. And if you're a Foxes supporter, you definitely know the chairman Vichai. Although, in my opinion, it is impossible to be an ethical billionaire, Vichai was as close as you can get. In 1989, he founded King Power, a duty-free retailer in Bangkok, Thailand. And over the next couple decades, King Power grew and grew and it became Thailand's primary duty-free shopping brand. Uh, Vichai loved soccer. And the first English match that he watched was the 1997, he went and attended this in person, the 1997 FA Cup Final featuring Nottingham Forest and... Leicester City. That was 1997. That's the first team he saw play live in England. Um, Leicester won that final, and with it, Vichai's heart. Nearly 15 years later, in 2010, Vichai and his son Iowat bought the club. The following year, Vichai became chairman. Iowat became vice chairman. Back to Buddhism here. Vichai believed heavily in the Buddhist principle of karma 
and specifically thought this would impact Leicester's results. He built Buddhist temples. He supported monks. He often had them bless the players and sometimes even vi had visited the monks' home in Thailand. He had the players visit the monks' home. The monks flying to England to see the players became a common sight. So he would fly monks in to bless the players. Vichai gave prayer space to the monks next to the referee's dressing room at the stadium. Uh, Leicester midfielder a Andy King explains the situation. He says, it takes a couple of minutes, and if it means they've done as much as they think they can to help the team win, then so be it. We enjoy doing it. The club has gone from strength to strength since Vichai has taken over, and we always trust his judgment. Vichai prayed with monks every match, before every match he attended, since day one. So every single match he prayed with monks. In 2015 and 2016, it all paid off as Leicester, 5,000 to 1 underdogs won the Premier League. I should have put a tenner on that. 5,000 to 1. It's yeah. it's literally the most underdog story in soccer history. underdog story, yeah. like, ever told, maybe. It, in like, soccer history, it's number one. It's insane. We actually watched it, like, unfolding Could live, not believe what we were I was, watching. Yeah, I, I could not believe, because I refused to get any of their players yeah, on my fantasy <laughs> team, and they were hauling every single week, and I was like, nope, I'm not touching them, it's unsustainable, cool they can't off. keep and it up. Every single week, yeah. people were like, oh, okay, but it's early. Oh, okay, they're yeah. still there, but they're not going to stay there. It was, like, at what point there. did people start realizing like Even match, winter, match week it was, 38 it, it, <laughs> the last it was, fucking week it came down to the last week yeah it was actually like in the winter when when everyone's like they might actually take it yeah uh, and that's when everyone started to put in a bunch of cash into yeah. into the markets and the betting yeah. but everyone was afraid of the, money the arsenal curse which is every time we're sitting on top of the league by christmas yeah but uh, december's just, yeah december's when for Arsenal, you know, like they're going to bottle it. Yeah. It's like, okay, cool, they're going to lose. We got uh, pretty far. We got the April to celebrate the win. Vichai brought eat, or he bought each player a new BMW i8 sports car. Oh, so wow. that's over 19 cars at 100,000 pounds each. Here, because here, right off. here's the sad part. Sadly, Vichai died in a helicopter crash, Kobe, in 2018, just outside King Power Stadium, the very Damn. venue that saw so much success for the club. Uh. He they took off and then it just went down. So yeah, he used to fly him and his son, and I think one of like you know his assistants and stuff. Yeah. They used to fly to the matches. So before the match, he would land in the middle of the field. Helicopter would take off. He'd go up into his box. At the end of the match, stadium clears out. Helicopter lands, takes off, and he. So the, his son wasn't with him that day. Yeah. When he took off, apparently I, I read into this something like you know malfunctioned in the tail rotor. Mm -hmm. uh, Chopper lost control, crashes in the car park, and Casper Schmeichel, who was the first team uh, goalkeeper at the time, saw the whole thing. Yeah, and they had he to like super, wrestle him to the he ground. He actually like ran out there to yeah. like try to help. Yeah, but, like there yeah. was they had to like hold there wasn't him anything down they could do. He was inconsolable. Yeah, because oh, it, so it was just it was just engulfed, tragic. In yeah, um, he was beloved by the community. His funeral lasted eight days. Uh, a fan, speaking of uh, Vichai's impact on the community, said, he took us to the highest high, but that night was the lowest low, the worst moment in the history of Leicester City. Casper uh, Schmeichel said, I think it's safe to say that without him, none of us would be here. The history, the memories we've made together as a club, as a family, probably wouldn't have happened. A BBC journalist summed up Vichai's everlasting impact on Leicester. He said, he celebrated his birthday by handing out cake. He bought drinks for traveling supporters. He bought breakfast and scarves for those on away trips. 
The family have put up millions of pounds into the club and lots and lots of money into local hospitals and children's care. They have put Leicester on the map worldwide. So shout out to Vishai Srivadana Prabha for fucking being the goat billionaire. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, he, that's a good story. He's doing this all the right way. I mean, he walks so you know guys like Ryan Reynolds and and Wrexham and stuff could run because yeah. everybody wants to do this now. Everybody sees these clubs that were you know that have a history behind them. You can throw some money behind it, but for the stars to align to do what Lester did is one in, in a trillion. Insane. Yeah, sorry for taking up uh, so much. I just like when I went in these, I was like, these stories are so fucking good. Yeah, yeah I mean, these uh, are this awesome, was awesome, though. man. Yeah, this this is really um, good. For honorable mentions, I wrote, there's too many to name, so we'll have to do Cult Heroes Part Two. <laughs> yeah, producer part Eric, two. you got yeah. your work cut out for you. Oh, yeah. <laughs> number two. Oh, I'll, send, I'll, I'll send you my short list. It includes a lot of names like uh, Wagner Love and Jimmy Bullard. Oh, <laughs> oh, Love. oh Jimmy. Jimmy, the Bulldog. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Let's get into the deep dive. This one is about Messi's origin story. I mean, after we do this episode, we're never going to talk about Messi again because this is like so, so <laughs> I don't much, know, so though. much messy. Yeah, it is a lot of messy, but, uh, you know, now he's going to be an MLS, so we're still going to talk about him. Yeah, so I, like, uh, like I said, this is Messi's origin story. This is just kind of him coming to get to his first team appearances at Barcelona. This right. isn't anything about his, cause we know how his career went at Barcelona. Obviously he became great, whatever. Um, this is just about him as a youth player mm-hmm. and about what up to when he made his debut Love it. Um, at Barca. So uh, obviously right now, right. Massive impact p- paid. Uh, he decided not to take a $1.6 billion deal Did the Apple and Adidas profit share. The tickets for the debut are even higher than NBA finals tickets. Uh, New York times posted a full, full page, like layout of when major league soccer got him. It says a major league coup and it's just about messy. It's got a giant photo of him. I mean, that's kind of unheard of in America, right? For soccer to do that. So for him to have this impact, is very obvious like we're all living in this moment of greatness right, right. now um, but we always want to know where did this little magical atomic flea come from <laughs> where did he come from that's one of his nicknames atomic the atomic flea. flea la pulga that means the flea la pulga atomica that's that's him the little tiny flea um, where did he come from and the answer is Rosario in Argentina He's born in 1987. Hey, hey, let's go 87. He's That's a, my year. I love it. 87. You know, he's 87 boy. Um, June 87, as a matter of fact, the 24th. Okay. You know? So he's about to be 36. Yeah, he's 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 getting there. Um, there are two main clubs in Rosario. There's Rosario Central and there's Newell's Old Boys. Newell's Old Boys is one of those clubs that is like famous, but it does have a funny ass name. Yeah. You know, there's a lot of those clubs or maybe one day I'll do a, a deep dive into all the funny club names because uh-huh. there's like just so many weird ones. Um, and I don't know where Newell's Old Boys comes from, <laughs> but they've had a lot of incredible players who've come through their ranks. Gabriel Batistuta, we talked about him. Mm-hmm. Uh, Diego Maradona played there and obviously Messi. You could you could go to, uh, you could type in a famous Newell's old boys players and there's just so many of them um it's it's pretty insane um Ignacio Scoco Christian Ansaldi are a couple Marcelo Bielsa 
was uh, involved there, and so was Mauricio Pochettino. So there, there is a ton. I mean, it's it's really a storied club, and I think even a few MLS guys have come from there and come to MLS. Um, Messi was a Newell's old boy, um, and he started there when he was a young boy. He was six <laughs> six years old. What? And um, he started playing soccer when he was four, and his grandma was the one who would take him to the games. And um, when Messi scores goals he goes like this he kind of points up at the sky with two fingers and looks up and that's uh, in honor of his grandma so every single time he points up it's uh i was reading about him and it says he's a devout roman catholic which Mm. is a huge l but like (laughs) at least he's you know loves his grandma which is cool yeah um he's honoring her with the celebration and yeah he joined newell's old boys at six and that's kind of why i wrote here's the shit that's wrong with america is that messi joins newell's old boys at age six and we're out here playing travel soccer <laughs> starting at age nine or age 10. Like, yeah. that's insane. Like, you should be playing because if you from six to 10 don't play, that's like valuable development. It years. seems like that's it. like the most valuable development years. And that's why, like, you know, you see so much great youth talent coming out of other places. Um, <clears throat> and, you know, kids do play soccer here, just not in a in a guided way. They kind right. of just are. OK, they can run around for an hour. I don't have to deal with them. You know what I'm saying? But. <laughs> In reality, you should be playing at a young age. Mm-hmm. So age six, a little tiny flea of a boy <laughs> joins Newell's old boys and he plays there for six years from ages six to age 12. Um, he was part of a team called the Machine of 87 because it was all these boys who were born in 87. Dude, I need that jersey. That would be sick if you got a shirt that's a Machine of 87. I feel like I could I should just like make a bootleg one Honestly, if I can't find one. Yeah, but you should do it in Spanish because they're probably like Machina Ochentes Isiete or something like that. Yeah. But um, he, was the, he scored over 500 goals in, uh, I think, in his time with that Machine of 87 team. So he was obviously an incredibly important player, but he was, like I said, a little dwarf flea. He was, he was tiny. And Adrian Correa, or Correa, I don't know how to say it, uh, assistant manager for Newell's Old Boys, when he saw a 12-year-old Messi in training, he said, when you saw him, you would think, this kid can't play ball. He's a dwarf. He's too fragile, too small. But immediately you'd realize he was born different, that he was a phenomenon and that he was going to be something impressive. Um, And he was small, but the reason he was, and he was a phenomenon, but the reason he was small, the doctors discovered, I'm sure you know all about this story. Everyone knows about it, that he had a growth hormone deficiency. Mm -hmm. So they were like, that's why you got them flea bones, baby. Oh my God. Uh, his, I love how you're still managing to like roast him. You gotta roast him. Um, come on, man. He's fucking got. He's a billionaire. I'm gonna roast him. Um, his dad's insurance at the time only covered two years of the treatment that he was gonna need, <clears throat> and I think that treatment was gonna have to go on for for a while. Mm-hmm. Um, so he couldn't afford it. Basically, it was a thousand dollars a month, and Newell's old boys were like, okay. We'll pay it. We'll help pay it. And so everything looked like it was set. He was going to stay at Newell's Old Boys. They were going to pay for his treatment. But then they reneged at the last minute. And uh, pretty much, I don't know why, but they just couldn't afford it, I guess. And mm-hmm. they were like, well, who cares? It's like a little 12-year-old boy, like whatever. Like we, It's like, is it worth like is it worth sending the club into debt to yeah. like make one player have, a, have fucking not bird bones? I don't know. <laughs> and so 
River Plate decided that they wanted him. And River Plate are like one of the, the two biggest clubs in Argentina are Boca and River. Okay. And River wanted him, but they didn't want to pay for the treatment. So nobody wanted to like people were like, yes, this is a great player, but we don't want to pay for his treatment because like, again, what are the chances that he ends up being good or whatever? So he ends up uh, at 13 years old trying out at Barcelona and uh, there is a the first team director over there at the time was this guy named Carlos Charlie uh, uh, Reshak, right? So Charlie Reshak was the first team director. And as soon as he saw Messi play, he was like immediately like, I want this player. Mm-hmm. He's like really good. He's worth it. We need to sign him. The rest of the directors, the board of directors and everyone were very hesitant because they were like, oh, I don't know. I mean, this kid's really small. He needs this fucking treatment. Like, we, we don't know if we want to sign this kid. And Charlie Reshak was like, no, like, I'm going to bat for you. And this went on for months. Yeah. So there was a, a bunch of months where, like, Charlie is trying to convince the board that they need him. The board are like, we're not really sure. And the, the goes on, goes on, goes on from back and forth. Finally, after months of this negotiation, Messi, the Messi camp gives them an ultimatum and they say, hey, you either sign us or we're leaving. We're going to find something else. So uh, Charlie Reshak, he is at lunch, I think, with Messi's dad. And um, I'll, I'll read a snippet from this article from The Guardian from 2014 from uh, Sid Lowe. Uh, it said his dad was getting angry and said Leo was leaving. Rishak later told the Sports Daily on December 14th, 2000. He met for lunch uh, and with I don't know who these guys are. Mingea and Gagioli at the Pompeia Tennis Club. We'll go elsewhere. Gagioli told him, I guess Gagioli must be someone who was negotiating on his behalf. But he said, we'll go elsewhere. Rishak pulled out a serviette, a.k.a. a napkin from a little plastic holder and started scribbling. I Charlie Reshak, in my capacity as technical secretary for FC Barcelona, and despite the existence of some opinions against it, commit to signing Lionel Messi as long as the conditions agreed are met. And then he signed it, and they all cross-signed it. And this napkin, it still exists. It was, it's a framed napkin, I think. I don't know who has it now. But to think that the beginning of this man's career was started at, over a lunch an agreement scribbled on a napkin, a napkin. Wow. you know, because they were like ready to go. They were going to leave because I think Real Madrid were also interested. Uh, so okay. it was like, OK, there's here it is. Have Let's to make do a decision. Deal. And so, you know, the fun, the, the line to look at there is he says, despite the existence of some opinions against it. Mm-hmm. So it really was like a kind of head to head like situation for the people at the top. You know, not everyone believed in this kid. I'd say most people didn't. Yeah. And so it's it's really interesting that, you know, it took that much convincing because in retrospect, you go, what do you mean they don't want to sign? I Messi? know it's that guy must be so like yeah. validated, you know, that he was right. <laughs> yeah. 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 I mean, it's true. And so obviously he had to start with the youth team. Right. He yeah. didn't just he was 13. He's not going to just like jump in right. and play at the fucking first team. Um, and, you know, he, he was working his way up. His whole family had come over with him. So his mom, his dad, his brothers and his sister. I think that's his family. Um, his dad got a I read somewhere. I don't know exactly in what capacity, but he got a job with Barcelona because like 
he needed a job. So Barcelona hired his dad to like do oh. stuff. So, um, you know, his dad is working for them, but Messi also was like kind of the main reason that they're there, obviously. Sure. And so you got to think like, this is like a shy little 13 year old kid who's about the size of a fucking thumbtack. <laughs> and he has to support his entire family. You know what I mean? It's, it's insane. Um, he has to go through all of these youth levels. Like I said, he's not just joining immediately at the top. Right. He has to, he's joining the Barca system, but he starts at a level called cadet. Then from there, you have to go to juvenile B, then juvenile A, I think. Then you get into the Barca team and Barca C. Okay. Then you have Barca B, then Barcelona like reserves then first squad right so you have to go through all of this shit mm-hmm. um, the reserves are considered I think part of the main senior team mm-hmm. but it's not the first team uh, he went from what I researched I don't know if this is true but he went through all five levels of the youth system in 18 months like that's how quickly he ascended through them because he was that talented so he was still less than 15 um, yes. At that point. Yes. We'll, we'll, yeah, eventually, you know, okay. he'll make his debut and we'll see when that is. Um, Gerard Piquet, who um, you might know, former uh, husband of Shakira, I believe. Uh, no? Oh, yeah. Does that sound familiar? Yeah, yeah, that does sound familiar. He's uh, He played with Messi, like, you know, for his entire career. And he was talking about when he played with him at the youth academy because all the youth players kind of came up together and they were like a really like tight-knit group uh he said we thought he was mute (laughs) they said he was in the he was in the dressing room on the bench just sitting he said nothing to us for the first month we traveled to switzerland to play a tournament and he started to talk and have fun we thought it was another person he was really good but he was really small and thin his legs were like fingers (laughs) one coach said don't try to tackle him strong because maybe you'll break him and we said okay but don't worry, because we cannot catch him. Uh, that's hilarious. And, uh, I kind of wrote here a little note that Messi is like the Marcel the Shell of soccer. Oh. <laughs> kind of, you know, Marcel the Shell with boots on, yeah. with, with cleats on, or oh, whatever. That's hilarious. Um, so here's the thing: he still, I guess, had some sort of transfer conflicts or some sort of maybe it's because he wasn't a Spanish citizen or something like that, but. Um, because he wasn't a part of the like Spanish kind of system or whatever, he couldn't become a full member of the team. So he was only able to play in certain games and like train and certain oh, things. Strange. So he had to sit certain things out. So that kind of you could maybe see like why he didn't feel exactly at home sometimes and felt like still the other, still removed, still shy. Yeah. Um, and he was so young. He was so young. He was a little little baby bird. And eventually his mom and his siblings moved back to Argentina. Because, you know, that's a lot for them, too. Like, yeah. their lives get uprooted. They move back to Argentina. So then he just has his dad. And he becomes even more homesick. And, like, it's really hard for him, you know. Um, but he decides to commit to Barcelona. He's like, because he had a chance to leave. He could have gone back to Argentina. And yeah. he was like, I'm going to commit to Barcelona. I'm going to give it a go. Um, he's very homesick. He's already super shy. Finally, he gets enrolled um, so he can become a full member. I don't remember exactly the organization, but it's like the Spanish Federation or something. Mm. You get enrolled with that and you're, you know, full member. I was reading an article that was written from maybe like seven years ago. And it was like obviously before he won a World Cup, but they were going back to Argentina and they kind of talked to a lot of people from the town where he grew up. And there were some quotes that were like, it was weird for him because 
he moved to Argent he moved to Spain so young that to the Spaniards he wasn't Spanish because he was an Argentine who moved to Spain. Yeah. And to the Argentinians he wasn't Argentinian because he like left left he so left young. he went to go yeah. to Spain. And uh, obviously now that he won the World Cup I think they're they're gonna feel a little bit differently. They'll probably claim him now. Yeah. Um. So at age fourteen he finally completes his growth hormone treatment, and uh, he is yet again part of an incredible youth team. This is a youth team that included players, I think, like Cesc Fabregas and Xavi and all those guys. Um, I think Xavi was on it. But uh, remember how he was part of the machine of 87? Mm -hmm. Well, now he's part of a thing called the Baby Dream Team. (laughs) (laughs) Just keep getting better Um, and better. And the Baby Dream Team won basically everything. I think they won the domestic treble. They won, yeah, so they won the league. They won their cup, whatever. They won pretty much everything you could win. They were an amazing, amazing all-star team. Um, one particular match that they won was the Copa Catalunya final. Uh, this actually in the final, somehow, coincidentally, they played Espanyol, uh, which is their local rival. So it was a derby, Barcelona versus Espanyol. Um, Barcelona f- are obviously the dominant team, forever dominant, right? Mm-hmm. But um, this game was called the uh, uh, Partido de la Mascara, which is the match of the mask. Uh it's because Messi, the week before, had suffered a broken cheekbone, so they made him wear a protective mask, kind of like, you know, Jalen Brown right. was wearing that before. <laughs> I think Rip Hamilton back in the day wore one. So they go, okay, Messi, you're allowed to play. He's 14 years old. They go, you're allowed to play, you're allowed to start, um, but you got to wear this mask. Uh, you have to wear it the whole time. So he's playing, but he's feeling uncomfortable, and his vision's hindered, and he's not playing very well. Um, finally, he gets like he gets he's over it. He's pissed. He just takes the mask off. He like rips the mask off and uh, immediately scores twice. And then 10 minutes later, they substitute him off. So from him taking the mask on, he takes the mask off, scores two goals within 10 minutes, then gets substituted off. I don't know if he was substituted because he took the mask off or because they just were like, you're, you're tired. We need to switch mm-hmm. whatever. Either way. Barcelona win four to one, absolutely smash Espanol, win the Copa Catalunya, um, and just caps off like an incredible run. Um, he after that gets an offer to go play at Arsenal. Arsenal were like, we love this kid, we want him, but he decides to reward Barcelona for their loyalty to like you know have him stay. And I think for him, he'd already moved once, and he probably doesn't speak great English. He was like, yeah. fuck being homesick again, living in dreary London. I'm going to stay in Spain. So he stays in Barcelona and um, he basically at that point has started progressing to into the senior team. And Mm -hmm. that's where he starts playing with a lot of like players who are very like global players. So Ludovic Juli is one of those guys. He played with him. Uh, His quote about Messi, he said, he destroyed us all. They were kicking him all over the place to avoid being ridiculed by this kid. He just got up and kept on playing. He would dribble past four players and score a goal. Even the team's center backs were nervous. He was an alien. And uh, <laughs> that's a pretty common thing, as a lot of people mm-hmm. call him an alien or like someone from a different world. Um, and to put this into perspective, Ludovic Juli, he's actually also a very small guy. Ludovic Juli is probably like 5'6 or 5'7 as well. But he was already on like the senior team. This is Messi, a young kid who at the time must have been, I don't know, fucking 16 or some shit. He, he, uh, no, you know what? Yeah, I think he, I think he was about sixteen. He um, 
he comes into training and is like bossing all of these like senior players <laughs> who like just last week were playing in Champions League. Yeah. And suddenly the 16 or 17 year old kid is fucking and you like up. a tiny one. too. Yeah. A little yeah. a little fucking dwarf of a child. <laughs> and you got to chop him down and they're chopping him down. He just gets up and plays. And that's respectable. Um, Ronaldinho took a liking to him. He called Messi his little brother. And for Messi, you know, that helped him get really comfortable. Like he was like, whoa, I'm being accepted by like, yeah, who at that time, a lot of people considered to be the best player on the planet, Ronaldinho. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm sure Messi had immense respect for him. Um, so, you know, Messi is getting comfortable in that team and he's starting to really be seen as one of them. And people are like, they see the writing on the wall. They're like, this kid is going to be fucking good. And the next season, uh, or like later that season or something, he finally debuts for the senior team. Um, if you remember the Copa Catalunya final, right, that they won 4-1, right. I said they played Espanol, yep. Derby, local rivals. So that was like kind of a, a match that I'm sure he remembers. Uh, well, it turns out that the first opponent for his first ever Barca appearance was also Espanol. So he debuted in a Derby mm-hmm. as well. This one, he came on as a sub just for 10 minutes at the end. He came on like the 82nd minute. And I'm going to quote Sid Lowe from the 2014 Guardian article um, because he kind of sums it up in a really great way. His competitive debut came on October 16th, 2004 against Espanol at Montjuic, a stroll up the escalators from the Plaza de España where Messi spent his first night in Barcelona. Wow. So the storybook, it's just the place where he literally spent his first ever yeah. night as a little deficient child who didn't know if he would live <laughs> and here he is about to play for Barcelona he comes on to replace Deco Deco one of the he's one of the greatest Portuguese players of all time a star midfielder amazing player replaces him in the 82nd minute of a game that one headline paper described as not much of a derby because Barcelona is just so dominant mm. um he was asked about the shirt he wore and he replied that's for my mom who's back in Argentina and then he added, I will remember those 10 minutes my whole life. Because uh, this is what he worked for, right? Um, and uh, Sid, is this guy's name Sid Lowe, right? I just want to make sure I'm going to write. Sid Lowe writes that others would not remember it until now. Because, you know, and this was at a time when he had 10 years. This was like 10 years, 10 years of later, him being there. Yeah. Um, a brief article at the foot of page five of the Catalan sports newspaper, El Mundo Deportivo, noted that he was the youngest Barcelona player since Paulino Alcantara made his debut in 1912. And that was pretty much that. Just a tiny little footnote. Here's some random little Argentinian kid, (laughs) youngest ever, whatever. Uh, Beside his name on the team sheet, where it usually lists your rating that you got for how well you played, he got an SC, which means uh, sin classification, which is without classification. He hasn't, he didn't play long enough for them to even rate him. Yeah. He didn't even touch the ball enough. Um, And it just said he hardly had time to shine. Uh, And he writes it, he finishes this uh, article by saying, Leo Messi had not done much, not something that could be said often over the next 10 years. And then I wrote, and now it's 20 years because he pretty much had a 20 year career and solidified himself as the absolute fucking goat. Wow. That's messy for you. I kind of got goosebumps. Like, I know. It is a really amazing 
origin story. It's it's wild. Yeah, it's really really cool. I mean, and you got to think again, like whenever we talk, because you and I talk a, a lot about soccer and shit. Whenever we talk about soccer stories that happen, I've told you this. For me, soccer stories that happen pre-internet era yep. are like so next level because it's just different. Like life, there's less to distract you. You have to marinate in your thoughts and the moment so much mm-hmm. more. Like to just imagine someone being like 12 years old and it's like 1999 and you're, you have to fly across the country, across the world to a yeah. place where you've never been. And the doctors are telling you this thing and all that. And it's just like, you know, to have your whole family relying on you too at that age. Mm-hmm. Like I can't imagine the, the pressure is enormous. I think a lot of the time we see these sports players and we think like, Oh yeah, he's just a guy who plays soccer. And you don't think about the human element of like right. his day-to-day life as a child or as mm-hmm. a as a young young person. And um I don't know. That this that's why I decided to focus on like his story getting sure. there. Cuz obviously once he gets to the first team, we know like yeah, you know, you know, we know what happened, right. but I don't know, I'm just thinking in comparison like when we talked about the American players who have gone overseas and a lot of them were much older mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. still kind of like the, the homesickness the like overcame them where they just decided to go back home. Yeah. And it's like, and I mean, maybe, I don't know, maybe he was in a way so young that that, that just, I guess like allowed him to not be, overcome with that fear but Mm -hmm. and the fact that he stayed with Barcelona too like he had so many chances to go other places but he really like valued the fact that they took a chance on him yeah he was I mean mean, it just seems like he's really like an incredibly thoughtful mm -hmm. and mindful human I think for me it probably the way I look at it is it took him this long to like get comfortable leaving Barcelona. Yeah. And also, you know, that's a crazy spotlight. The pressure that people put on you and the like the people who are in charge in those boardrooms and the presidents, like they'll tell you that like they love you and you mean something to them. And, you know, you're like, mm, or am I just making money for the club? And that's right. like kind of where uh, what's his name? Laporta or whatever. The guy who is the president at, at Barcelona, whatever he said, like, it's like, oh, well, I guess he just wants less of a challenge. It's like, the fuck you, man. Just say thank you. <laughs> Jesus right. Christ. This guy like fucking made you what you are. Like, exactly. Enough of that. Yeah. Um, last couple things I put in here, some footnotes that um, he actually has had an impact far beyond just soccer. There is a famous uh, internet cat named after him called Messi the Puma. And if you go to I am Puma on Instagram, (laughs) you'll see a two million follower uh, kind of mountain lion type looking thing. Wow. And uh, it's called Messi. Oh, it's so cute. That's Messi the Puma. Okay. Um, And also I wrote the Sistine Chapel of football because they painted a, uh, a fresco of him as David and Maradona as God. Oh, wow. Touching fingers. And this is at. Some, Where is this? It's in uh, in Argentina somewhere, I think. Oh, that's very cool. Yeah, at a, at a, either a, I don't know, a soccer, a soccer place or a bar or some shit. I don't mm-hmm. know what the fuck it is. Um, that's it. Yeah. Any questions on Messi before we get to the pop 11? <sighs> no questions. That was incredible. Like, yeah, it just kind of adds to the excitement you know I did put um if you check the slack I did find this old picture of him and he was a very tiny 
tiny little boy. The flea. Um, The atomic flea. Yeah, it's just, I don't know. It's incredible to be that young and be so great at something and like be able to to commit, you know, your life Mm -hmm. at such a young age. Yeah. And you know what? I got to be honest. If I was his dad or something, I would have been like, mm, I don't know if you need to play soccer. Like, I don't want you to break your fucking bird <laughs> right. bone. You got like tiny little bird bones. Be yeah. Like, looking like a little fucking shrew mixed with a thimble. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> Some shit. I don't know. Well, that was inspiring. Yes. Thank you. Um, I was inspired as well. Um, I'm so inspired. As a matter of fact, I'm ready to take a fucking break. Hope you guys enjoyed that. That was the last time you'll ever hear the back pass. For now. For season Yeah, and when we come back, maybe we'll do a different thing next offseason. Who knows? Uh, if you want to keep up with us, you can find us in a lot of we're, places. We're on Twitter at Calling Casuals. We are also on Instagram and TikTok at Calling All Casuals. And you can send us an email. We love reading your emails. That old school way. Yeah, calling All Casuals at gmail.com. That old school way with a uh, looking pigeon. glass and a carrier <laughs> pigeon. Yeah, I have Amy print them out, time to a pigeon, and mail them over to me. Or mail the pigeon to me. I don't know. Uh, whatever. We're, we're going to go. Uh, you're going to find us uh, next week with a brand new episode. Episode one of season two, where we're going to talk about everything that happened in this cack off season. A little catch up episode. A little catch up episode. A little catch up. A little, little catch up for the meat. A little catch up for the pessy. Um, all right. Let's get the fuck out of here. Uh, thank you guys for listening and we'll catch you next week. And remember, keep it casual. Shishkin Productions Podcast.